Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Hello, and welcome back to Your Family Dog. I'm Tina Spring, and I'm joined by my good friend, Julie Fudge-Smith. Well, we're becoming friends anyway. Um, And this week, we're going to talk about the first principles of dog training. Where do I begin? And what brought this on for us is, for me anyway, is that I'm totally new to this podcast, not new to dog training, but new to the podcast thing. And so I don't, Julie and I don't know each other very well. And so I don't know, it's kind of like speed dating. We're having to figure it out (laughs) as we go along. And so there's, before we record every podcast, like we have this little like pregame chat where we're kind of, I think, feeling each other out a little bit and going hey, am I going to make you mad if I say this? And hey, how do you feel about that? Because well, dog trainers are dogmatic, if nothing else. So <laughs> that's true. Uh, it is. It's really true. Like the, the old joke of what can you get two dog trainers to agree on that the third person's doing it wrong. Right. Absolutely. So, so we th- I thought this would be a good topic for Julia and I to just explore together about where we each kind of conceptually start with a family or with a dog. Like if I bring in a foster dog and I'm going to work with that dog, or if, um, if a family contacts me or if a family contacts Julie or she's fostering a dog kind of where we begin. And so Julie, where, where do you begin? Where do I begin? Um, well, I, when I'm working with a new client, um, I've become a little bit more flexible over the years that I'm not always, this is the way we're going to do it. You have to learn these things first. So I've become a little squishier there, trying to work a little bit more with individual clients and their needs. But one of the very first things that I cover with them is certainly my philosophy of training. So they understand who I am and where I'm coming from, because if they don't agree with my philosophy of training, things are not going to go particularly well. My philosophy of training boils down to three basic parts, management, relationship, and training. Management is all about setting your dog up for success, meaning that you help to manipulate him and his environment so that he makes the right decision rather than the wrong decision. One of the classic examples is when you're a house training a dog, what you want to do is make sure he doesn't have full access to the house and you want to carefully supervise him so that he lets you know when to go out and you get him out. Or if he has an accident, it's in an area that it doesn't matter, that it's easy to clean up, that he's not soiling the living room rug. So it's it's crates and gates and tethers and things that help him to be successful. Management is both short-term, crates and gates and tethers when they're younger, a little bit less as they get older. And it's also long-term. It means enough exercise, good food, regular vet visits, all the things that your dog needs to be successful as a dog, to set him up to be the very best dog that he can be. Then there's relationship. And I talk about, um, I use Sophia Yin's example of partnership and a dance. I don't ever talk about dominance or dominance theory. I don't think it's relevant. I don't think it's mostly humane. What I will talk about is I want you to develop a relationship with your dog that's based on cooperation and trust and that you are partners in a dance And your job as the leader is to give clear signals to your dog, let them know what the rules are, clearly communicate to the dog, this is what's going to happen. 
And the dog can say, okay, great. You give me this cue, I'm going to follow you. And if you think of it as a partnership and that you're in this dance together, then it's not, it doesn't become nearly as frustrating because it's not like you trying to always impose your will on the dog. Instead, it's the two of you facing the world together. So if there's a problem such as jumping, then you can say, okay, what do I want you to do instead? And how are we going to train in that direction? So that the relationship gives you a way to look at the world together. If you have good management and good relationship with your dog, then I usually find that positive reinforcement training is a natural extension thereof and becomes pretty easy. And that positive reinforcement training is all about, I try to explain to my owners, is that is you reinforce desirable behaviors and you ignore, redirect, or prevent undesirable behaviors. So what you're doing is if you, if, for example, your dog looks up at you and he wants to jump, but he sits, then you're going, if you, if we're using clickers, you're going to mark that behavior. Oh, good dog. And give a treat. And the more you mark a desirable behavior and reward it, the more you're going to see it. If the dog does jump, turn your back, you ignore it. As soon as we got four on the floor, I reward it. Management helps with the prevention and oftentimes, like with puppies, I really want to chew in your arm, but instead I'm going to give you this bone to chew instead. I'm going to redirect the behavior from something that's inappropriate, like my arm, to something that is appropriate, a Nyla bone or a chew toy. What I usually find and is that as these things go in place, that, that as management becomes better and you build your relationship, your training gets easier. As your training falls into place, your relationship builds and your management becomes easier. This is not a ladder. This is a web. And the three of these things work together to give you um, a satisfactory life with your dog for the rest of its life. So I always start with explaining those three things. And then from there, I will add in particular activities or things that I think that the dog really needs at that time. But that's really where I start is management relationship and training. How about you? I totally dig that. I probably don't do it entirely the same way, though I would say that's definitely how my hierarchy works, right? So my pregame is going to be give me a whole bunch of data. Um, And I've been Mm -hmm. in practice a, a long time, right, and have some specialties that are a little bit dicey sometimes and complicated. Um, I think for people who do um, a lot of the the more difficult behavior work, the cases that come to us are really complicated and mm-hmm. there's a lot to tease out. So yeah, first and foremost is always management, which is interesting because in my group classes, we I don't even talk to people about management until later because they're all excited like, we're going to train the dog. And I'm like, okay, like, I love you. You're not going to like, you're not really going to do all that. Um, (laughs) Management's a lot easier, but it's kind of like, I'm never going to eat a donut again until there's another donut. So, right. um, Right. So I love that. Right. Like I do love that they come in with that enthusiasm and I want to roll with that, but typically a couple of three, four weeks into class, they're ready to hear about like, we could just manage this behavior and that that is training too. I think, right. I don't, I don't tend. So I tend to think of it as your dog is learning. You are training whether you have intention or not. That's right. I tell people that, you know, um, every time you interact with your dog, somebody's being taught something. It might as well be the dog. So, well, or both of you. Right. Right. Like I, 
I had someone the other day go, oh, so you're like the dog whisperer. And I said, no, I'm actually the polar opposite. I am actually a dog listener. Oh, I like that. Is, I like which that. is really different. Like I start and, and, you know, you and I were talking about Suzanne Clothier and that, you know, she's awesome. Um, and that maybe we'll approach her about, about coming on. But, um, one of the things I love about her is that you see in practice with everything she does, she seems to actually start with, how is this for you? How is the world for you, dog? Um, and I, I think back to, you know, if, if you were coming to visit me and you get lost and you call me and say, Tina, help me, I can't find your house. Well, I can't just start giving you directions. I have to actually know where you are first. Right. So I'm going to be like, okay, so Julie, where are you? So um, for me, that is that, how is it for the person, right? How right. is it for the family? But also how is this moment, this life, this situation for the dog? And a lot of what I do, I think, is translating those between them because just mm -hmm. like in human interaction oh we agree on a whole bunch more than what we all disagree on dogs don't want to be ticking off their owners they, they don't want to be getting fussed at they want to be included they want to learn what you're trying to teach them for the most part um and i don't i have never met anyone yet maybe i'll meet them tomorrow somebody <laughs> who wakes up in the morning and goes i want to make my dog's life miserable like i just i don't I don't right. see those people. Those aren't the people calling me. Um, so I will say this about the dominance theory thing. And and I think some of it can be cultural, right? Mm -hmm. um, I can remember years ago when Christopher and I first started kind of seriously dating, um, getting frustrated, you know, talking to somebody on the phone and, and being frustrated and worked through it. Like, I'm, you know, I'm frustrated for a living. That's okay. I'm pretty good at that. <laughs> And, and insulating people from that frustration. But the, then you get off the phone call and you've got to vent maybe a little bit. And I remember saying to him, like, why, why is that dominant stuff so easy for people to just decide dogmatically that that is the truth of it all? Like, why is that? And he goes, oh, that's easy. <laughs> as, as a dog trainer, you know, he's not a dog trainer, right? So he has it perfectly clear. He's like, everybody's been bullied by somebody else. So it's easy to assume that the dog is bullying. And I was like, oh. And it really changed how when someone kind of presents that dominance thing, I don't get all dogmatic about it. I talk mm -hmm. about, like, I come at it from a different direction. That I'm like, okay, so in what way? So I'll just tag it. Like, in what way? Do you feel like the dog is trying to bully you or or to to get his way or to make things difficult? Like, where do you think that conflict's coming from? And I have found that that takes all that garbage out of it um, in kind of a really elegant way where I'm not pitting because like mm -hmm. humans, again, we're just kind of dogmatic. And so if I believe something and you go, well, you're wrong. Like I'm going to dig in like that's natural human condition. But if but if you start to say, well, let's talk about that. Let's let's peel that onion. Let's see what's there. Well, 
now we're not at odds and we're actually solving the problem together. And I, they're going to, they're not going to hear dominance answers right. from me. So if what we do works, then I don't ever have to like overtly disavow them of right. something that feels true. And and I do think sometimes it, it feels true to people mm-hmm. that their dog is being pushy because their dog is being pushy because they don't know how else to get their needs met. Not because, right. you know, they're trying to take over the world, though I have owned a dog who was appropriately designed to run a third world country. Okay. Well, good. You know, I, he yes. just kind of came into the room and went juice. <laughs> so we worked on it. Um, well, I, I'm glad you mentioned the fact that, that you, you, you assess where you're at, because one of the reasons why I'm not quite as sort of, oh, we're going to do these things in this order as I used to be is because I am assessing more of where yet, where are you at? Where's your dog at? What what are we talking about here? Because one of the things that I, I will get to with all of my clients, but it depends a little bit on where the dog is at, is I do talk a lot about stress signals and canine body language. And if I'm dealing particularly with a dog who has some fear issues or is under socialized or has, um, you know, is, is anxious or fearful or aggressive or whatever, I will go to talking about body language sooner than sort of I have a, for lack of a better term, sort of a, a normal, well-adjusted puppy. We'll talk about stress signals, but it might not be as imperative for me as it is with a dog, especially if I have a dog who's fearful or anxious, because I think it's really important for owners to understand and recognize that canine body language and what their dog is telling them, because it's much harder for us to work with helping that dog overcome his fear and anxiety and become more comfortable in its world if we're not reading it correctly. So stress signals is something that is uh, one of my first things, especially with dogs who may have behavior problems, because I hear this, oh, he's being stubborn or he's being difficult. And sometimes I just need to say, I'm not sure that he's actually being stubborn. I think in this particular case, he's confused. He's trying to let you know what's going on or he's fearful. He's not being stubborn. He really doesn't want to do this because he's scared out of his mind or pain. I mean, I think I honestly, like I see a lot of dogs And maybe this is because my parents have been breeding and showing forever that I kind of look through a window of structure. Mm -hmm. Um, And so sometimes it's really clear to me from how that dog is moving their body or how they're not balancing their weight in kind of an equal distribution or they're not picking their head up. I'm like, oh, well, so what you're asking that Uh, So recently, relatively recently, I think probably two years ago, I had a client who had worked with me when his dog was young. Now his dog's older. And and he's one of these guys that he's kind of ex-military. And I love him. He's great. He loves his dog. He's just a gruff guy. And when he says sit, he means sit. He wants his dog to sit. Right. And he doesn't think that's too much to ask. And honestly, his dog adores him. Well, the dog's 14 now. So he was... He called me because suddenly Ruben is being really disrespectful and not doing what he asks. He won't sit when he tells him to sit all the time. And he just, you know, the trainer's got to come in and fix that. 
And so I went in and visited and we had a nice cup of coffee and talked about it. And I said, okay, let's grab some treats. And we navigated through, I don't want to use treats. And I was like, okay, well, I'm using treats. I don't know what you're going to do. So <laughs> Ruben likes me, doesn't like you. No, I'm teasing. Um, but the first time he cued a sit, Ruben rocked, started to rock back into position and then very quickly stood back up and offered a down. And I said, okay, do me a favor. Try, try that three more times. So three more times. Cues a sit. You know, and each time my sweet customer's going, see, he's being stubborn. And I said, oh, okay, sweet man, he actually hurts. This is a veterinary referral. And he kind of groused at me a little bit, which is okay. These are broad shoulders. Got him in touch with a chiropractic vet. They saw the dog. They gave him some adjustments. Dog now miraculously has remembered how to sit. So I think stress signaling, pain signaling, definitely. And and people yes. forget that dogs are going to signal. Humans do too. Like all of the stress signals that we look for for anxiety are the same ones dogs use Absolutely. for pain. Um, and just because a dog is young, I mean, we often assume that young means healthy and feeling okay. And that is just not always. That's true. That is absolutely case. true. My Bingley got arthritis in his right front leg at the age of two. Right. I've seen dogs who ran and jumped off the porch and sprained a pastern, and that pastern was never, ever the same. Um, so I think sometimes it's I'm when I'm talking about their signaling, I'm talking about their uncomfortable and whether that's emotionally uncomfortable or whether right. that's facial or whether that's physically uncomfortable. We have right. to kind of figure out. I remember there was one dog. Um, this is early in my career. Um, it was a big newfie, beautiful dog, sweet, sweet temperament. But would just it had a funny sit, just a really it was not a square sit. It was sloppy into the side. And when in class, it would just have a difficult time getting up. And, and they said, oh, see, he's lazy. And I said, I think there's something going on. And this is a young, young dog, but you need to have her hips checked out. Turns out she had major hip dysplasia in both hips. And, um, you know, and she wanted... She trying so hard, she would do this funny scoot across the floor because the stand up was too painful. And we're like, seriously, she's not. And, and they were, they just thought it was, you know, kind of cute and silly. And I'm like, I understand what you're saying. And it's it's hard to believe that a dog that young is only a year old right, would have enough. that. kind. But yeah. I also, I talked to um, Zuzu's orthopedic surgeon and he said to me, and this was several years ago, that he has in 10 years has not seen a good new fee that the, the breathing is such that the hips are just really bad and most in a lot of new fee lines. And that's just really sad. Of course, he's an orthopedic surgeon, so he gets those right. cases, but nonetheless, um, and he said he's seeing it younger and younger, which just sort of confirms what I had been seeing as a trainer. Well, and I'm seeing more and more thyroid implication in really young dogs. Um, so so for me, especially doing a lot of behavior where like we've got some significant stuff going on, those a good relationship with a vet is really, really important because I there's a whole bunch of stuff I am not at all 
Um, you know, I cannot assess. I can just guess. Now, I will say that, like, my educated guess is going to be better than your Google search. But um, but I just think sometimes for owners, it's, well, he's just, he's, right. It's how it feels. It feels that way. And I will say this, so before I forget, that my big sweet Marine, he's like a big old cream puff. And when he, when I said like, oh, honey, I think he hurts. And look, he's not picking his head up all the way. Like, I think his nips, hips or knees or something isn't feeling well and it's going up the back and now he can't pick his head up all the time. And he said, well, you know, he did stop looking at me. And all of a sudden he just softened. And then I had a big puddle of a Marine who yeah. felt really bad that he's been mad at his dog a whole bunch. Right. right. So I think sometimes we are in the position to, as trainers, as groomers, as veterinarians, as parents, to be ambassadors right. for our dogs and to give them a voice and to just be curious about, okay, well, maybe he's a jerk face <laughs> or... Or maybe I could give him a little bit of grace and maybe try to sort out like, okay, is this like, did you jump off the porch wrong last night when you were chasing that squirrel out of the yard and, and you broke a toenail or you just landed wrong or you have a toothache today or you have a, I don't know. I, I had somebody ask me recently, do dogs get headaches? And I'm like, I'm pretty sure they do. Right. I don't, we'll I never don't know. know. <laughs> That's right. Well, the other thing is, is it can be something as simple as um, you need they need a toenail trim that it hurts to walk because yes. when you, I, I tell people you shouldn't hear his toenails when he's walking across the floor. But you should when they run. So some stuff's hard. Like I love our management relationship and training. Totally mm -hmm. agree with it on all that. What about all those self-reinforcing behaviors, those sticky wickets? that um, the dog is intrinsically rewarded for. Um, Give me where, an example. Oh, there's all sorts of, so barking, self-reinforcing behavior, even jumping up. Right. Well, a lot of it is, um, I will have somebody say, they come to me and they say, I really, 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 really want to have a recall. That's, or a come, that's my most important thing. So after we talk about management relationship and training, then I'm like, okay, we can work on a come, but you know, part of all of training is that I, then I, my explanation is, is that no matter what you're talking about in training, it's all about impulse control, whether you're talking. Yes. About, and so we can evolve to particular impulse control exercises, but really all training is all about impulse control. And one of the best ways to start impulse control is making sure that your dog checks in with you and that it's, dis, it's disengaging from the distraction and re-engaging with you. So my first few lessons are usually all about engagement, about getting your dog to focus on you. And I can do that depending on the dog and depending on the owner. Um, you know, if I have an elderly owner, we, we modify things a little bit more. I'm not doing perhaps as much athletic stuff. If I have somebody who is... Um, you know, disabled, can only use one hand. That modifies things a lot with what we do. Um, but one of the things that I'm always looking for is ways in which the dog is having fun engaging with the owner. And so we will do something like, um, 
one of the easiest ways for, for elderly people is the name game. Teach them that if you say your name, you all have to do is say it once and the dog's going to whip his head around and look at you. How do we get that? So we'll work on instilling a really strong name game so that all you have to do is say the dog's name, even in a very quiet tone of voice, and we'll look at you. Because if he's looking at you, then you can ask him to do something like recite the preamble to the Constitution or, you know, you know, walk back here with me. But if he's not looking at you and you ask him to do something, I equate it to being to having a teenager on a cell phone, right? If the teenager is uh, texting on a cell phone and you ask him to do something, your chances of him listening to you are what, 2% if you're lucky? But if he stops and looks at you like, like what, mom? Well, now you've got a 30% chance he's going to listen to you, right? So it's the same kind of thing with our dog. But if you tell someone else in the room, they hear all of it. (laughs) Like that's the trick with teenagers. You go, honey. So I think I might ask. So it, like that, they're listening to like they're recording all of right, right. That. But just... <laughs> so so I try to talk to people about the fact you want your dog to check in with you. So we'll do things like yes. you know, like find it. I drop a treat. Oh, you find it. That builds some confidence. You look back at me. I toss another treat. You look back at me. We toss. You know. So I'll do stuff like that. I'll do a toss and treat recall where I toss a treat. You go out. When you get to the treat, I click or say good dog, and then when you look at me. I say, oh, come, you know, Fido, come. And then if you're coming towards me, I click and you get right up next to me and I treat you right up next to me because I want your come to mean you're a space invader so that you are right up next to me. I'm not treating you three feet in front of me. And so the toss and treat recall teaches the dog that even when I'm away from my person, I'm mentally connected because we're playing this game of in and out. And it's really fun. And then we can start tossing lots of different directions and stuff. So it's most, my, my first few weeks are all about, my first couple of things are all about engagement, impulse control of turning away from distractions and engaging with my owner. Because once we're doing that, then we can start doing more complicated things like loosely walking and really good recalls and a variety of other things that, that they may want. But it's all about impulse control and engagement. I have a dog listener question for you. So I think, uh, and this is kind of a a new thing I'm floating into my practice. So uh, I have kind of like this little inkling of an idea that while we do things like your example of the toss and fetch recall, right? Mm -hmm. Where we toss a treat, we call the dog, we pay him again, we toss a treat, right? And you're building engagement from the dog. I actually have started floating in like it are we accidentally teaching our dogs that all of that negative attention seeking stuff is actually how to get your owner to engage that that just like dogs are hugely distracted by all sorts of things right mm-hmm. both internal and external to the environment so are we like we're on our phones and we're making dinner and we're playing with the kids and we're talking to our spouse and we're switching laundry and I sometimes wonder if part of the reason that dogs are more anxious, dogs are more tense, like that we've seen this huge escalation. We don't, I, I don't often talk to owners about like, you need to clearly signal to your dog, like, I love you, but not right now. Like I have to focus on this other thing right now. And, and the cost to the relationship on that other side, because I want a dog 
when they ask to go outside, I want them to be able to trust. Like, yeah, I'm going to engage in what I'm doing and I'm going to help with that. Or, hey, we've got a problem. We need we need you to help sort this out, mom. We need water. We need or or just they just want we need my mom for a minute. Right. Right. Um, I don't know that as dog trainers, we're super good at saying like, hey, what polite ways does your dog have to get your attention that they don't have to escalate to negative attention seeking? That's like, a great question for which I don't have a good answer because I hadn't really thought of it in that way. But I think that is really, really interesting. I feel like I need to think about that some more. But I guess off the top of my head, what I would say is um, it's part of why I teach a dog to settle, you know, so that when the dog comes up, well, one thing I do do is like when Zuzu needs attention, she tends to come up and sort of lean into me. And so to me, that's a very appropriate way to ask for my attention. So if she does that, if she approaches me in a gentle way, I'm much more likely to engage with her, find out what you need. Do you need to go out? What do you need? But if she comes at me like a freight train, I tend to turn off. I tend to, to just go, okay, I don't pet you. I don't talk to you. You're going to jump. I'm going to turn my back. If you're calm and ask me, then I attend to you. And so, so I, I love that, but I will say like, I am seeing, and I'm going to, I'm going to pick on doodles for just a second and not in a negative doodle way, just in that's the breed group that I'm seeing it. And I think I know why. So I get tons of people who are like, my doodle jumps all over everybody and it makes me crazy. And I've done all the things and da, 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 and he's still doing it. And when I go and observe that behavior, I will tell you it is that because they look like Muppets, people molest them. So they go, they do what they do with my pug. They squeal and they run in and they assume that that's a giant stuffed animal that has infinite tolerance for ridiculous amounts of interaction and what I see from a functional standpoint is that that jumping up, they learn, they're smart, smart dogs. They learn, oh, if you claw them in the face, they stop trying to touch you. And so it is the ah. reason the behavior is impervious to behavior mod is because it is actually a functional behavior. Like a kiss to dismiss is a functional behavior. If I lick you on the mouth, the average human is going to move their head away. So this idea that it's all of the, it's both sides of the dance. It's both sides of the dance. It, it is that sometimes those behaviors that feel so impervious to being fixed are because they, I think, and I'm guessing like y'all reply to the podcast, like, Yes. Chew, help me chew on this. Like, is it because this behavior actually works for me? So the child who lies because that actually works better. Right. Right. I think I think you're onto something. I really do. I really think you're onto something. The other thing is, is when you were talking about that, not only does it get the person to back off, but the other thing is, is if you think about it, that is how people are approaching the dog. So that. The dog yes. is learning, this is how you interact with somebody. 
So that's part of it. Those doodles almost never jump on me. And it's because I don't close the distance because I don't feel like getting jumped on. Right. So it, so if we're going to talk about it being a dance, let's actually talk about it being a dance that I don't always get to lead. Right. Sometimes I don't know all the steps. Like I, I don't have the like magic map from the elves that I am the keeper of all knowledge. And often I think our dogs are escalating to what we would perceive as negative attention behaviors, inappropriate behaviors as a mechanism to exercise some control in their world. I would agree with that. And to say, I don't want every stranger. And like, I love them. The doodle people are like, no, no, no. He's so social. I see so much social anxiety in those dogs. Right. Right? They're so worried. I just had a doodle client who um, her dog, this, this uh, friend of theirs came to visit and he was just like, whoa, rushing in at the dog. And she backed up and growled and air snapped at him. And they, that's when I got the phone call. And I'm like, right. Cause the dog's broken. And I'm like, okay, I love you. Right. Um, if he had done it to you and you didn't know him. Right. Um, yeah. So my own feeling is, well, I, th- I think your friend's broken too, but um, uh, so one of the things that, that I always do is I'm always insisting that the dog gets to choose who to meet. Dogs have yes. very little control over their lives. They don't get, they don't get to choose what they eat or when they eat or when they go out or what their toys are or any of this stuff. Those are all presented to them. But the one thing we can give them I is, think people misread that ex, that high arousal and excitability, and they think it's happy. Right. And there's and, a big difference I mean, my, between friendly it's, and it's, aroused. And yes. And I think Colleen and I talked about that in, yes. in an episode that that people always make that mistake. Arousal is not friendly. When a dog pounces off of me, I hate that. And that's not friendly. Yes. Friendly is when I come up and I'm saying hi and I'm leaning in and we have two to three seconds of really gentle interaction. That's friendly. Using me as a backboard? No, that's not friendly. That's arousing. And when when you're assessing how is this for you, right? Like if I come up to you and tackle you and give you kisses all over your face and a big, huge, heavy hug and you're like a personal space girl. It's not kind. No, it's not. It's not kind. It's definitely not cooperative. So I, I, I just, these are the concepts that keep me up at night, chewing on, going, like, I've got owners who are really, really frustrated, who then are like, honestly, like, they'll think about big levels of punishment because they're doing the positive things to, they think to try to solve the problem. And yeah, it's actually not a problem. It's working great for the dog. Right. Right. I think that's it. Because the dog's uncomfortable, but they don't they don't see that because it's it's a golden retriever or a doodle or a greyhound or this or that. And so it is infinitely happy to see people. Look how excited he is. He loves people. And so if I'm saying like he doesn't actually like those super fast, crazy approaches, it feels wrong to them. Right. Because that would mean that they their dog's broken. And I'm like, he's not broken. He totally will accept maybe that from you. He may enjoy that from you, but not like I, I see it with the pug all the time. Mm-hmm. Like you can hear people squeal 
through two car windows and air conditioning when they see a pug in my car. Pug! Like you hear that shrill scream because they're so excited that they saw a pug. Now, fortunately, my pug is deaf, so he doesn't actually hear any of that. He just thinks people make big, happy faces. Um, Right. And he gets a little overwhelmed sometimes because people are just like pugs are friendly. Mm -hmm. Right. And he will jump up and it's totally a functional behavior. He's like, hey, you're a little close. I like that. That's something I feel like I need to mull over a little bit more, but I think that's an interesting way to look at it. And I think the other thing is, is, is that when we are able to present options to our owners for a different way of looking at a behavior, to me, that's just really important because that tends to breed sympathy rather than frustration. When I say, wow, this is really hard for you, isn't it? I'm looking at the dog saying, it's really difficult. You're not really wild about this, this, you know, and, and yeah, it's really hard when Tim does that to you. And, and wow, I'm really sorry that you're so uncomfortable. And then they're like, oh, oh, that makes a yes. difference. And so I think being able to offer an alternative explanation that puts it in the realm of not really being a bad dog and he's not really trying to do this in order to you know rip your face off this is what what this you know he's uncomfortable he's unhappy he's fearful he's anxious and the way that that people approach him makes him uncomfortable let's talk about what we can do to make him comfortable so that these behaviors will lessen so i think it's really valuable to look at these in different ways to consider the fact that maybe this is not uh, this is uh, dogs are many things, but vindictive is not one of them. And um, I don't think they're out to take over the world. I don't think they're out for revenge. I don't think they're out to be vindictive. I don't think they're out to hurt anybody. I think they're out to get what makes them feel good, just like anybody else. And you know what? So let's help them to be successful by trying to have a better understanding about what actually is going on with them. And so I think that's what that's actually. I think yours and my very first principle is what's going on with you. How can I help you enjoy and be more comfortable in the world that you exist in? And if that's our guiding principle and our first principle, then all those other things will flow quite naturally from it. Management flows, relationship flows, training flows, specific things that you want to accomplish with your dog flow from the idea that I want to start with where you're at and help you become the best dog that you can be in your situation and to become comfortable in the world in which you exist. Well, and to say to a family, when each of you are thinking of your individual relationship with the dog, what matters to you, right? Like I, I try to build in if so like the kids who are all about like taking pictures, like I'm seeing children go through this developmental stage where it's like, it's all about they're taking pictures of the world around them because they grab somebody's old phone that's only hooked up to Wi-Fi, doesn't have a SIM card in it anymore, but they're, they're capturing images in their world. Well, it takes two seconds to teach a dog to strike a pose and name that cheese and to empower that child to have a good relationship making a dog, the dog the subject mm-hmm. of a bunch of different photos without physically forcing the dog 
and making sure the dog is comfortable, right? Like I have seen almost all dogs think that that's the nuts, partially because they're not getting bossed around and they're not getting touched. Right. Like right. they can walk away. Um, and, and for me, when I'm working with families and kids, I want to see those photos, email them to me, share them with me on Facebook, whatever, show me the videos because we're going to use those to discuss the signaling of that individual dog. Very good. Very so good. So if I see a stress signal, I'm going to say, hey, tell me what happened when we were taking that photo. Perfect. Oh, well, we had been playing for a really long time. Huh. So if you look at this picture and if you look at this picture and we look at Fred in those two pictures, what does his face say in this picture? And what is his face saying in that picture? And what do you think? And we just give the dog a voice. I will also say as primates, we are totally monkey see monkey do. So if I'm modeling to an adult, the conversation, the dog's half of the conversation, like, oh, that was a little scary, shifty dog trainer. My fervent hope, and I've seen that meted out in, in my practice, is that they are going to start doing the same when they are trying to teach their children. Right. Right. right? That, that I think in terms of how do I adjust what I'm doing to get the outcome that I want from the dog and then get that repeated, place it on cue as appropriate, and we get more of that. Right. So it's not that there's a right or a wrong. It's just whether or not it works or not. Right. So it's not my dogmatic answer. It's, is it getting you, I don't know, maybe kind of Dr. Phyllish. It, you're like, how's that working for you? Right. Like is squealing at the dog and rubbing him a whole bunch, getting him to stop biting you? Is telling him no, getting him to stop mouthing you? Probably not. So let's try something different and see what the puppy does and then practice it. Right. That's a, that's a great approach. That's a great approach. So I think it all boils down to is, is really paying attention which is how any kind of relationship is the most successful is if you pay attention, pay attention to what you're doing, pay attention to what they're doing and how does that make the both of you feel? So I think this has been a very interesting discussion. It's certainly given me some stuff to talk, to think about over the, over well, so, so yeah, like I want to like, let's marinate on that. And I would love to get people's feedback because I, I could agree. totally just be seeing something wonky and weird. Yeah. I, I like interaction. I like, I, I am not the font of all knowledge. Like I'm going to throw ideas out there and it's super helpful to me, but also to the community I serve right. to have me give you your feedback and go, no, you're totally wrong about that. Or uh, no, I'm wondering if there is okay, something. So when that. we get some feedback, we will come back and revisit this particular issue when we get some feedback from people. So make sure you go to our yeah, website, we, I mean, www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com, and you can send us an email through there with your thoughts about this so that we can go back and revisit it. So, yeah, and maybe maybe read the email or, or maybe even invite somebody on sure. to talk to us. Yeah, and if you have somebody who has, if you can recommend somebody who you think would be a good person to talk to with us about it, We'd love to hear those suggestions, too. And if you have any topics that we haven't covered that you'd like to hear, make sure you email those to us as well, and we'll try to get those on air. So, and since we're plugging the, 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 uh, the podcast, if you like what we're talking about, if you like the subjects that we're doing, please like us on, uh, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Google Play, wherever it is you get your 
podcast because that will help others find us as well. So thanks for that. And we'll see you next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.